This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. There he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. <laughs> Help me! Help! Help! Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Manly Man Cave here in the Mellon Law Studio in the piney woods of North Central Florida, which is God's country, in case you haven't checked lately. Mellon Law Studio, Mellon Law has 50 years of experience and they are the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators and they won't back down. They also are a full service legal uh, provider and crime prevention protects the Warthog Command Center 24-7 so you can worry less with crime prevention taking care of you. Contact them at cpss.net and check out our mugshots brought to you by Maurice T. McDaniels. Well, we're waiting on a connection here with Cat uh, Kamek who is a uh, Maybe en route. I don't ever know quite where she's going to be connecting from, but uh, we have an understanding that we'll be chatting with her in a little bit. So uh, anyway, uh, I want to bring up some things with you until uh, we make the connection. And I'm going to bring these things, uh, uh, you know, we'll come over here and switch around uh, and talk about some things that are kind of hanging uh, out there that I haven't gotten to yet. We titled the show today the latest political fad because um, uh, it seems that politics is uh, very shallow to a lot of people and seems to run on a fad. And by that, I mean, what's the latest idea that can stir people up and get them in the streets and take them out of the quiet solitude and rational debate of give and take? Um, that is what you would hope for in a democracy. So we're kind of in a, what I've come to consider to be a fad, and you know what fads are. They are really passing fancies. Um, you know, it, it, it stays in style for a while, and then it drops out of style, and, and then it, uh, something else takes over. I know once upon a time in the days when um, the youth of my generation began to rebel against the quote-unquote establishment, which was brought on by the Vietnam War, um, we had a... Uh, rebellion against anything that was connected with the establishment. And that meant, of course, bless their hearts, not getting haircuts. Now we're sponsored by great style cuts by uh, David Ratliff. So I'm telling you, I'm glad, I know David's glad that we're back in the generation when getting a haircut is actually something that uh, is in style or a fad now. It's not just, and he calls his business style cuts. But in the day when the rebellion began against the quote unquote establishment, uh, took place across a broad uh, expansion of the culture, and one was to grow the hair long, and the other was to stop buying fashionable clothes. You know, when I first came to the University of Florida, uh, everybody dressed to the nines, and the, uh, I remember at the first football game I attended, I think it was in 1961, uh, everybody dressed up for it. Uh, the girls, all ladies, uh, all dressed up in their finery, uh, and the men wore ties, can you believe it, to the games. It was a really kind of a formal uh, audience that watched the violence on the field. And that began to slip away and slide away and, and erode, if you will, or change, depending upon how you look th at things. You know, and, and now, you know, it's, uh, none of that is, is, is around that I can find, at least at the institution known as University of Florida, which I attended then which in many ways is radically different today from what it was then. So um, it is a, a fashionable type of thing that comes and goes. Now, one of the things you have to realize that goes along with that is the rewriting of ethics. And every generation rewrites its ethics. And uh, people need to understand that when they, uh, and what are ethics? That's what the culture and the community decides is appropriate. Uh, generally for public view, and there used to be a real dichotomy between the public and the private, but that's erased. Now we have to know all the personal private business of people, which really in the public, which we don't really need to know. I don't need to know 
who's doing whom uh, in their sexual preference catalog in order to enjoy watching them compete in sports, let's say. It's, it's not of any of my business, and it shouldn't be any of the public's business. But we have eroded that difference between the public and the private. Now, it even comes down to manners. Uh, manners were once upon a time used all, always, everywhere, universally, particularly in the South, uh, because uh, it is a way of keeping people at a distance. Everybody was kept in his place, if you will. Uh, good morning, ma'am, and good morning, sir. Uh, notwithstanding race, and uh, was always used, and it meant that uh, in the public life we have, uh, we uh, know each other's role and uh, respect each other's role, and indeed everybody could be uh, the leader of the pack. So many people, uh, you know, were support people. I'm talking about uh, the way in which the culture was structured, and it was structured. And it was completely different from what we have now, which is structureless. Uh, there was a hierarchy, and um, it all began with a kind of a biblical model. Um, but along came really a fracture and all that. And, and once upon a time, it was actually a word called Christendom. And uh, Christendom now doesn't really exist any longer. So it's um, difficult to, to determine uh, where it is and if it is there. And if it isn't there, so um, it's it's um, it's um, problematic that there's uh, anything right now that can put the society into some sort of order where everyone has its role. And you see this primarily right now in the attack on the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution was meant to structure uh, chaos and get order to it. It was, it was uh, meant to be a kind of um, a roadmap for how to get from point A to point B in your lives. And, you know, we need those kind of things. We have them in highways. We have them in all sorts of uh, infrastructures that we understand. Uh, without a container, you can't pour milk out of anything until it's contained. So the form and content was united into one structure we don't have that now. We have a kind of a formless society. And uh, we are constantly in flux about whose ethics shall prevail. Since there's an attack on the time-honored way of determining that, it's now taking its place into the streets. And you have this emotional, um, derisive attack on people who don't agree, uh, fueled by all sorts of, 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 of ideas that don't have any kind of a merit to them, uh, don't have any sort of, uh, uh, make any sense. And uh, you see it, 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 for somebody like me, you, you really, you, you sort of see it everywhere. And I lately saw it uh, in a letter to the editor here just uh, uh, yesterday, or today it came out in the Gainesville Sunset. I sometimes read through the letters to the editors just to kind of get the pulse of the public and there's a man named James Sullivan from Gainesville, whom I've never met, who wrote um, something about single member districts. And it is so misinformed and is so poorly structured that it's really difficult to tell if there's any way you can straighten this out, even with a red pen. But I'll make an attempt to do that. Uh, this gentleman begins by saying a number of local Republicans supporting Keith Perry's in run. Uh, let's start right there and say, it's not just Republicans, all right? So automatically, if I'm gonna take the red pen to Mr. Sullivan's thoughts, uh, where did Mr. Sullivan get this notion um, that it's um, uh, just Republicans? You see, he writes that a number of local Republicans supporting Keith Perry's end run around Alachua Charter, County's charter, it's not an end run. It is a legitimate form of placing albeit laborious and albeit really hopefully would have been unnecessary. It is a perfectly legal. It is not an unnecessary structure. It is part of the system. I see, I think Kat Kamek is uh, taking in with us now. And so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to table this for a moment and talk a little bit more about it. Uh, let me see if we can contact with Kat. Kat, are you there? Hey, can y'all hear me? Definitely can hear you, Kat. Thanks for checking in. I think you're with us awesome. to the bottom, bottom of the hour. 
you with us? Um, I maybe. I think, I think, anyway, <laughs> let me let me just let me just uh, prep you for you. I think I'm with you. Nine fifteen. I'm so sorry. We've had connectivity issues today. Well, let me just prep you with a couple of things you may need on your campaign trail. Um, I was going to explore this a little more deeply with you. Um, there is a very interesting Wall Street Journal article July 1st by Kimberly Strassel that accuses you members of Congress as getting absolutely nothing done. Um, it's called Congressional Sloth in her, in her article. It's mind boggling, she says. It's systemic, partly rooted in mandatory spending regimes that account for about two thirds of government dollars and runs on autopilot. Um, but we have now a, uh, a, a high profile legislation crafted in leaders' offices that uh, bypass committees and debates and amendments. And um, I can just warn you that this is going to come up on the campaign trail because I'm hearing it. And they wanted to, some people wanted me to get your opinion about this. Um, these um, are uh, brought to light, especially by the EPA case. And of course, the Roe versus mm -hmm. Wade and also the guns. So what you are you getting anything done in Congress is, I think, what we want to know. <laughs> well, and I think that that's part of the frustration, right, is that Republicans are in the minority. So do you think, honestly, that Nancy Pelosi is going to pass any of our legislation? No. You know, and when you think about it, you're four votes shy. When you're four votes shy, you would think that there would be a bit more bipartisan work going on. But I think it being so narrow in those margins, we see an even more hyper divide, uh, a deeper divide in Congress. And so when people say, like, what are you doing? Well, I'm exposing what is going on in Washington. I am talking about the things that are actually really dangerous that aren't the headline news, because a lot of what mainstream media is all about is the, the distraction, right? It's the shiny object of over here, look over here. We want you to be upset about this issue. Meanwhile, we're losing our country and our constitutional rights quietly because they don't want you paying attention to what they're actually doing. So when you're in the minority, you have very few tools in the toolbox to really affect change unless you want to go along with this ultra woke progressive agenda, which of course I do not. So I really have found a place in Congress as exposing what is going on, educating people as to what is going on, but then activating people. And by that, I mean, we go and talk about, hey, this issue is coming up. Call your member of Congress, because we have a, a followership of people from all around the country. And it's been pretty remarkable to see the impact that that has on the process. And so we encourage people to call on a very particular issue at a very particular time. And the Capitol switchboard lights up. And all of a sudden, members are coming to me on the House floor during votes, Republicans and Democrats, saying, hey, I just want you to know, and I've had this conversation several times with Democrats, they'll say, I want you to know, I've been getting calls in my office all day. And you think I'd be mad, but I actually appreciate what you're trying to do because it gives me cover to push back against Pelosi and Steny Hoyer when they want us to go even further to the left. That, to me, is a win. And so when people are like, well, why can't we impeach and why can't we do that? Well, it's because we don't have the votes. And so this is really the frustrating part of a lot of folks don't understand how government works. They don't understand that you have to have the majority and 218 in the House. And of course, with the filibuster in place, you know, you've got to have your 60 votes and in the Senate. So it's, it's frustrating. I understand. I get it. Um, but the good thing is, is that we have done a really good job of exposing what is happening in Washington. We have done a really good job of recruiting a different class of legislators to come in in the 118th. And we've put together the plan that will be in place on the very first day of January uh, of next year when we have the House back and we'll be able to execute on the things that we all talk about. Well, there's another part of that question. I think it's a pretty good answer, and hopefully we're that done. And to what extent, and I'm sure you're going to say to a large extent, does the federal bureaucracy lean to the left and frustrate your efforts? Oh, gosh. Um, be a great example. Very in Zach, and we introduced with over a hundred 
And Rain Act is a very simple bill. It is very much a small government bill. It reigns in the federal bureaucrats that reside in the basements across Washington, D.C. And it says that any regulation that would have a $100 million impact on industry or more has to come back to Congress for a final vote because we, the people, can't fire these bureaucrats. They basically run Washington uh, with no accountability, no guardrails, and it's a really frustrating deal because we have become truly an administrative state. So this bill would would basically start the process of eroding that. And as I'm as I'm shopping this bill, talking to people, they're like, "Oh, I'm all about that." And then you run into the people that are like, "You know." I actually um, do a lot of work with that particular agency, and I've had people reach out and have asked me not to sign on to that bill. And I'm thinking, who elected you, the bureaucrats in Washington or your folks back home? <laughs> and they get real, real fidgety about it. So the the swamp, it is a a a just incestuous cycle of. They want to increase rules and fees and regulations so that they can continue to grow their agency so that they themselves can get a higher title within the agency. And, and it, it really is a disgusting cycle that needs to be broken. And I think it's going to take legislation, but I also think it's going to take leadership from the White House, and which, of course, we know that that won't happen under the Biden uh, regime. So. Uh, we, we've got a lot of work to do, but I have faith that the American people, especially when things like, like what's happening now, when it gets bad, people start really paying attention. And that's what it's going to take is people waking up and naturally getting involved. Well, the Clean Power Act takeover uh, shenanigans by Obama, as you, I'm sure you oh. are, was, was uh, just corrected, thank goodness, by a conservative court, and uh, yeah. which, of course, is going to be attacked by the left as it needs to be dismantled or packed. But um, these statutory and constitutional problems um, really probably going to be on your desk for quite a while. So as you uh, as you uh, declare yourself willing to go back up there and take this thing on, uh, I think in a show like this, what you might think about doing and elsewhere you, you, you talk is um, let us know how to participate and what to participate about. Because people, you know, it's like it's like the students voting here in the city of Gainesville. They don't vote unless they change the bar closing times. You get me? (laughs) 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 I'm serious. They only vote when it affects their bar closing times. So what the, the point there, people tend to only vote when there's something in their backyard that makes a difference. Now, what can we get done about and we've been this is another point of frustration been there, but is there any way the Supreme Court just let Biden keep the immigrant borders a mess? Oh, that that one really, really gets me because not only are we we witnessing the U.S. government complicit in human trafficking and basically being an ally of the Mexican cartels, but this is impacting our everyday life here in Gainesville, in North Central Florida. Every Every town in America is a border town. And you've heard me say that time and time again. And people say, well, I don't understand why you say that. Well, look no further than Marion County. Marion County has had two huge bricks of fentanyl, fentanyl, that have been discovered here. And they have the stamp of a border cartel on them. And along with it, you know, the, when they do these, these raids and they find these drugs, you know, they're, of course, arresting these criminals who are, um, you know, bringing it in, trafficking these drugs. But then they're always finding things along with it, right? So in this last particular bus, they found a uh, specialized pill press. And what they were doing was they were going to make pills to mimic Xanax and other um, opioid-type medication, but it's fentanyl. And one pill can easily kill you. I mean, uh, they've said, you know, a few of the little grains of almost like salt size of fentanyl, you're not just going to get high, you're going to die. And so these people were using our community as a beta testing ground for these pills of trying to get it right of what can we sell as, you know, a Vicodin pill or a Xanax pill or, um, you know, Adderall, you know, pick your drug and, um, or your prescription. And that's the thing that to me is so dangerous about the just nonchalant nature of this administration and how they're, they're handling 
the open border crisis. Because not only are we seeing the United States allowing this to happen, but the cartels are getting incredibly wealthy off of it. They're making over a billion dollars a month, a billion dollars a month. Their infrastructure from their security and their enforcement mechanisms to their cyber and technology uh, infrastructure that they're building up to their logistics and distribution. It's rivaling that of the Mexican government to the point where our own military has released a report saying that 40% of the entire territory of Mexico is under cartel control. 40%. That's basically the equivalent of saying, and, and now I don't, it's actually not the equivalent, but that's almost like saying 40% of America is controlled by Antifa. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, these are staggering statistics. And, and no one seems to really wrap their head around the fact that these folks aren't just disappearing into thin air. They're landing in our communities. So if you're talking about the, the women and the children and the families that are coming here, they have no resources. They have nothing other than the charity of the United States to then take advantage of our social services and our safety nets, which puts a further burden on the safety nets that are in place for local communities. And as we're heading into tough times with gas prices and rent through the roof and grocery prices through the roof, everyone's going to be hurting. And we continue to take on this burden. And it's because the Biden administration has zero policy when it comes to the Mexico relationship. They have no border security policy. And I think ultimately they want this to happen because they think that they can turn these folks into future voters. Little do they know that most of the Hispanics that are coming across are very conservative people. So I think that'll backfire. But think about the 50 plus individuals just this year that are on the international terrorist watch list that have come into our country. Where's the outrage from the administration? Where are people standing up and screaming, saying this isn't right? And where are all the human rights groups that, you know, and where's AOC crying in a parking lot when you find nine-year-old little girls that have been raped brutally by the cartel? It's the You know, it's interesting. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned this. It's interesting you mentioned this because I've been contacted by a United States attorney uh, to come and be briefed by the United States attorney's government uh, data on just exactly what we're talking about in the city of Gainesville and the county of Alachua. Uh, there yeah. are so many children here, I'm told, and I'll know more because I got an appointment very soon with this gentleman and all their staff. Uh, in this community, cat uh, that are homeless, not, you know, I mean, by abandoned children and the drug issues pouring in here into this city and county, which is um, really yeah. amazing. And they reached out to the show because they want to broadcast and let the community know about this. Human trafficking is happening in every corner of our country. And people say, oh, that's not happening here. It's happening in Gainesville. We've had some pretty horrific cases that no, never got covered. Um, I, I know we have some, some really incredible groups and passionate people that work on this. I know the gentleman that you're talking about, and he's worked on these issues for a long time. It's happening here. It's happening in our backyard. And I just, I find it so disturbing how the left is coming after the conservatives saying, you don't give a damn about people. You don't give a damn about kids. Actually, yeah, we do. But you don't because it doesn't fit with your political narrative. And it, it's just, it's really frustrating. And we need to stop approaching these issues as Republican versus Democrat. We've got to come together as a community and really take on the fight, especially with human trafficking. That is modern day slavery. And people would be shocked if they knew how much of that is happening right here in our own backyard. We're talking with Kat Kamek, who is our Congresswoman from this area and running for re-election. And I think that's coming up right now. I see your, uh, your, uh, your uh, uh, ads around and we have been giving her pretty good schooling here on what you all wanted me to pass along to her, and that is what is bogging down Congress. And really what is bogging down Congress, we need to make a regime change. Of course, we can't make one at the executive level, but we darn sure need to make one in the Senate and the House. Um, but we've got this culprit in the, in, in the lunchroom, if you will, and that's the media. Um, the media is still controlling things, Kat. Unfortunately, it's, um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, it spins a narrative that has always been the one starting with Obama they wanted to spin. Yeah, you know, that's the thing that's really frustrating is getting good information out. And I think that's why we've worked so hard to really give a front row seat to what is happening in Washington. And um, it started small, just, you know, hey, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm heading to the House floor and here's what we're voting on. And the messages that I would get back were incredible. They're like, well, man, this seems pretty serious. Like, why am I not seeing this on the news? And it, it hit me that it all comes down to the dollars, right? You know, who are the advertisers for big media? Who, who is driving the narrative? Well, it's the people that are funding these shows through advertising dollars, which ultimately they all belong to an association, which has particular views um, and wants to always check boxes. So the media is so, so um, tainted with really just independent journalism and I think, you know, look no further than what we have in Gainesville. I don't think the Gainesville Sun has ever written a positive article. I mean, I feel like I could, I could sit, do anything and they would find fault with it. And um, it, it's really discouraging because they're not a local newspaper. They're owned by a conglomerate. I think USA Today owns them. So you're never going to get a really, truly independent outlet or media source unless it is driven up from the ground up. Um, I think that there's some local journalism that goes on here locally that's good. Um, they do a good job in handling local issues. But until we really break up the, the, the fourth branch of government, which is really the media, right, um, that is going to be a persistent problem where people don't know what to believe and they're constantly distracted by chasing a headline. And that has got to, that has got to change because we can't say that, oh, well, I get my news from Facebook. Well, we know who runs Facebook and we know what they, they control what you see. And um, so that's a problem in itself. We've got to get to a true, a truly honest public square where people can have conversations. Um, And we've got to get back to a place where there's a basic fundamental understanding and agreement on facts, like the sky is blue. Because even today, that might be this, uh, 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 a point of contention between the right and the left. So, yeah, we've got some serious work to do. Um, and I think this notion of what the left is trying to do with their Build Back Broke agenda in publicly financing the small town newspapers and outlets, that's part of the Biden agenda, is to take over all the newspapers and basically uh, subsidize them. Well, you know, Holman Jenkins, just, just to back you up here, I, in a few minutes, we got to let Holman Jenkins writes that uh, Biden owes Putin uh, a big uh, favor, professional courtesy, uh, for not making global headlines, pointing out that the U.S. intelligence community knowingly published false allegations about Russia to protect Biden from personal embarrassment and help get him elected. And then Jenkins says that when Trump lies, he doesn't get any help from the establishment. I think that was pretty funny. <laughs> Biden oh, and all man, the yeah, other I, guys. I, huh? Well, I, no, it's funny. I just I, I was thinking of um, a comment that uh, I, I was in an interview yesterday, and they said, you know, what do you think about Trump and all these wild allegations that he constantly gets? I said, I call him President Teflon because he just takes so much just, I mean, nonsense, lies, right? And it just kind of bounces off of them because people are so jaded with the nonsense that's out there. And a lot of that's due to the the big media, right? Corporate media. Well, we're trying to do our part here, buddy. It's really tough because, uh, you know, it's it's tough. Sponsors don't want to be associated publicly with the conservative voice. I'll just give you a secret there. Uh, They're afraid that they'll get picketed by not very much different from what the Supreme Court has happened to their homes. Um, they'll be put down because they sponsor the Ward Scott Fox, you know? Um, so it's tough. It, it, it's tough. And that somehow, yeah, you know, we got to get around that somehow. Really what we need to do, and I've talked this over with some people, and I don't know whether it's ever going to happen. We take a big leadership role is start buying radio stations and uh, hook up with uh, simulcast and podcasts and radio stations that are conservative uh, in ownership. But, um, it's hard to do. You can't find them and you can't, you know, I think the money's out there. 
but then, you know, how do you organize and how do you get it going? We've been working a little bit on that behind the scenes, but um, you're right. There's no alternative to voice. I, I can't watch the, the ABC news because I sit there and I realize what they left out, you know, and an, an error of omission is bad as an error of commission. So um, they get a, a fragmented um, view of what's going on. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate because nobody rebuts it. Just like the January 6th, that's not really due process. That's not, there's no rebuttal. You know, there's no cross-examined witnesses, examination. So mm-hmm. now we know that it's a sham and, and that's the thing. I think the less tactics of bullying and harassment, um, it unfortunately scares people because they know that, you know, if they scream loud enough, despite the fact that they're wrong and despite the fact that they make no sense, it's childish. Um, businesses, people just don't want to deal with it. And that's really a shame. So I think that the tide is turning. It's just going to be a few more painful growing pains, to be honest. But I appreciate everything that y'all are doing. And I got to jump. I'm, I'm already, I'm already no, behind for the yeah, day. But I we see you. We see you. We threw you off schedule, but it was a good, it was a good throw off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the award. Have a Thanks great day. Thanks for checking week. in. Thanks for checking in. We're going to take a little break right now. We'll just talk with uh, our Congresswoman Kat Kamek from this area. And of course, uh, the frustration is felt by all in Congress who don't quite have the votes to turn the ship around. And that's been very important where the public comes in. We try to do our part by getting you good uh, conversations to participate in. So uh, then it's up to you. You got to go to the polls and you, and you got to hope that what you do exactly properly counted, right? We'll be right back on the Words God Files after uh, some, we'll really hand clapping for our sponsors and supporters, really patronize these people. They're great people. Uh, we'll be right back on the Words God Files in just a moment. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul.
Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Uh, I want to emphasize manly. You know, it's out of fashion, out of fashion to be manly. Um, the, uh, I think that mic is open there, Tammy. Um, we got a new trainee, Bob, bless her heart. She's right on the ball. Every once in a while, she doesn't button push just in time. So fortunately, we didn't have anything that you didn't, or you weren't old enough to hear. <laughs> so anyway, um, I want to pick up on a couple of things here that I was talking about before uh, Representative Kamek came on. And, you know, the misinformation, misunderstanding that's out there, I feel that one of the things the Ward Scott Files does is try to correct the record or grade the papers, if you will, and try to set the, rec uh, the narrative uh, back on its tracks. Um, this is an issue that uh, very few people understand. That's a single member district thing that's coming up. It's going to be a, a contentious uh, discussion. Already the Minister of Propaganda, Mark Sexton, is, as uh, he and I, have talked about him coming on the show and debating me about it, which we're going to do. And um, we'll have some fun. But this letter by Mr. Sullivan in the, in the Gainesville Sunset today is, is so full of, I'm going to use it as kind of a training tool on how much misinformation, misunderstanding there is. And what frustrates a teacher is that people have opinions, but they don't know where they got them from. And then so they have uninvestigated opinions from which they argue. And the argument is flawed from the very beginning, but they think it's sound because they're arguing from opinion, opinion they think is so. And, you know, they don't end up knowing what they're talking about, but then the audience to whom they're sharing, with whom they're sharing the opinion, if they don't know any better, they don't know the guy's done the way he's talking about either. So as I was saying, when the Kamek checked on, uh, this gentleman writes that a number of local Republicans supporting Keith Perry uh, in run around Alachua County. Let's, let's, let's set the record straight. This is not just Republicans, just Republicans and Democrats. And it's not a Democrat-Republican issue. It's more of a rural and urban issue. And we've likened it to how the Electoral College works. Electoral College uh, uh, keeps uh, New York and, and San Francisco, Chicago, the big urban centers from electing the president. And it distributes them in a more equitable and fair way. So if we had single member districts, we would keep Gainesville from electing all the representatives for the county. And indeed, there's nothing to say if you have single member district that you would elect a Republican. You would elect somebody who wasn't necessarily from the urban core, which is where ideologically, if not physically, they reside right now and have done so for decades. And only way to, the easy way to check that out is go take a look at the charter review process, which Mr. Sullivan doesn't understand, evidently, and look at the Gainesville-centric appointees. About 80% of the people on the charter review committee, and I wrote a, an article about this, which was published in the Gainesville Sunset, I think it's out on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board, are, are indeed from Gainesville. And, uh, and, and so what, there's, there's, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a you know, pretty good example of what I'm talking about. Even the representatives are not divided up rural and urban on the Charter Review Committee. So that's led to frustration. So uh, there, was a there was another way to put something on the, on, the char on, the, on, on the ballot just for the people to decide. Now, here's the thing that I don't quite understand. What is somebody like Mr. Sullivan afraid of? The people are not necessarily going to pass single member districts, particularly when maybe 80% of them, I'm just making that up, but I sort of feel it's so. Uh, don't understand what they're voting on, which would not be the first time, right? So they voted on something they didn't understand. So, so here, we, here we have a situation that is right from the get-go in the opening sentence wrong. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's to be um, 
um, checked and evaluated and debated. I'm giving you flickering lights here. I may go lose power for some reason in a moment. We're on a backup generator, but we will probably shut the internet down. So anyway, I'll keep going here. Um, the the um, uh, the the com the complaint, Mr. Sullivan says that conservatives are not fairly represented. No, the complaint is that rural people are not fairly represented, and rural people may be Democrat or Republican. Okay. And we can pretty much show that by the voting records. We're going to work on that later. Um, so then Mr. Sullivan says that he's a Democrat living in a Republican gerrymandered state. Um, no, he says he doesn't. I don't know how, where his evidence is for that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's got nothing to do with the city, the issue of county, the county issues. The state has, you know, a gerrymandered state is a totally different essay. I mean, you have to, you know, it's, whoa, Mr. Sullivan, let's stick to one issue. But no, he mixes this in, and I don't know what the purpose of it is, other than to give you a kind of a glimpse into his confused mind. Um, he says he's not had an elected representative in Tallahassee in decades. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit about that. An elected representative in Tallahassee, Clovis Watson Jr., uh, was in Tallahassee. He uh, was uh, in uh, the House. Uh, what's this man talking about? You know, um, he, he, he says, you know what he's talking about? Or is he talking about a, a particular, so he can't figure it out. But Clovis Watson Jr., I think had two, I know he had more than one term, our current sheriff had more than one term in Tallahassee. So uh, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, comment that he makes in his, later in the second paragraph is that they, and that is, uh, I guess, Republicans, want special districts elevating rural voters over Gainesville's majority to make sure Republicans dominate. See, there's so much confusion in that sentence. He started out, well, he started out shaky with that sentence. They want special districts elevating rural voters over Gainesville's majority. Not elevating, not elevating, balancing. Balancing, it's not elevating. So I may actually use this letter to rebut and write my own response later down the line. Uh, it's just typical of the confusion uh, that is in the minds of people when they begin to talk about a bunch of stuff. Um, they really don't know what they're talking about. But nevertheless, uh, it's a free country. They can talk if they want to, I suppose, unless they're censored by, you know, Facebook or YouTube or something like that. Um, and it's not for naught that you understand the Gainesville Sun would be eager to print a letter to the editor like that. So um, let's talk a little bit about something that's going on um, called, uh, you know, where the cancel culture is really uh, at, at work. And that is in the, in the academic world. Um, the academic world, take it from me, I've been in the academic world all my professional life. And I can tell you that it leans left. Let's just put it fairly benignly. It leans left. And it's sort of understandable in a way. A lot of these teachers feel uh, that uh, uh, really they want to empathize with the student and they, uh, they uh, perhaps coddle the student. I, I come from a different um, frame of reference. I think that you demand of the student, uh, you're fairly, and, but you give the student the instruction on how to better uh, oneself. And, um, and, and you don't necessarily uh, doing any coddling, I mean, if a student fails the course, it's not that I failed the student. It's that the student failed to perform adequately enough to pass the course. So uh, this, this whole thing is matriculated into the, into, the, into the media. It's matriculated certainly into the government. And now we got a, a whole problem of rewriting history. And as I was saying uh, before we got on with the representative, um, you know, this goes on all the time. Uh, when the people, young people rebelled and grew their hair long and wore bare bottom pants and stopped buying fashionable clothes and uh, uh, all that sort of business, that's, um, that's uh, the, the fashion that took over in the late 60s and throughout much of the 70s. And, you know, so it all swings back and forth. Uh, once upon a time, you could freely and openly smoke and um, the University of Florida football stadium. Once upon a time, you could freely and openly smoke inside the University of Florida classrooms. 
in our uh, uh, in our offices in uh, at Santa Fe, uh, we had ashtrays in our in our offices in, in, you know, installed by um, the architects, and uh, that was because everybody you know accepted that as a as a, an ethical practice if you wanted to do it. And then what changed it? What changed it? Well, you know, discoveries and understandings and enlightenments and uh, evidence and science. And, you know, it, it's pretty interesting, too, to know uh, what I'm getting at here is how COVID has been politicized. I ran across this. This is, you know, there's all this business about the COVID vaccine. And basically, fundamentally, period, from what I can find from the great doctors who's whose opinions I, of that I trust, is that nobody knows a darn thing about COVID. But COVID has been turned into a political issue. And there's some research I ran across that I think I, would be interesting to share with you. Um, the politicalization of, of COVID. And what has happened is um, there has been a prominent narrative that has been developed about the mRNA vaccine, which has found its way out into the public over, uh, this is a, according to um, a research done by a Storyful Intelligence Organization, something called Storyful. Uh, over 100,000 social media outlets mention uh, um, the mRNA vaccine uh, and the focus of that is as uh, uh, a DNA alternation and whether it is safe or not safe or all the above. Now, this narrative has become a messaging issue that is used now to divide Republican and Democrat. Generally, and this is kind of a generalization, but it's based on a lot of investigation by Storyful Intelligence Research, uh, where they've looked at uh, media outlets, where they've looked at uh, uh, particular influences of uh, the narrative, uh, all the way out to representatives and uh, people in government. Uh, the, the messaging about COVID, um, the anti, let me oversimplify, but it's basically what it's found. The anti-MNRA tends to come from real extreme Republicans. By that we mean not middle of the road conservative Republicans, they accept the mRNA vaccine. The radical Republicans, and there are radicals in each group, don't. And then on the other hand, the radical left Democrats are totally convinced that um, anybody unvaxxed is a pox on the world, and one should be masked all the time, constantly safeguarding against the possibility of being exposed to something. Even though they have all been vaxxed and double vaxxed and boosted, they still go masked. And it's almost a visual way of separating Republican from Democrat, using the mask as an indication of their belief about the mRNA none of which can be proven because the mRNA has not been around yet long enough to substantiate some of the extreme right fears or to dispel them. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of evidence that the mRNA vaccine has mitigated the dangerous effect of the COVID although it is recognized it will modify itself in response to the modification that the mRNA has done to it. And it would be a back and forth ping pong type deal. So, but the point is, this has been used as a political football uh, by the, to separate the folks into political parties. Um, some of the most engaged messages about mRNA vaccines, according to research, come from right-wing politicians, and um, they dismiss 
outright the positive results of a Pfizer and, uh, vaccine and Moderna, and they speak out generally against COVID-19 vaccines, and uh, they become a major contributor to the dichotomy, political dichotomy uh, that um, it has existed and now does exist in our culture. So, it, it, you know, it's almost as if what I've learned from this is that you can never eliminate all the political politicalizations of every nook and corner of life. And this is another example. Um, the growth of disinformation about mRNA is also found to be partially due to skepticism about big pharma. So that has worked its way into the thought process. And there really have become uh, two separate groups in society now. And the conspiracy theories have gotten to the place where mRNA information is fraught with false narratives and really savvy and motivated manipulators of the information, both pro and con. So um, it, it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of frustrating to realize that ultimately it's like to me it's like driving a car. If you really are concerned about the statistics working against you every time you get in your car, what are the chances that you will be in an automobile accident? And more importantly, what are the chances you'll be in a very serious automobile accident? They're far greater than that you'll have a serious negative consequence from an mRNA vaccine. That's been found. But you get in the car anyway. What's the choice? Now, how this has played out politically in terms of economy is also being noted now. Research is showing that the so-called red states like DeSantis that did not shut down the economy and mandate mass have recovered, if they ever were behind to any degree, their economic stability and prosperity, while those places where the mask was mandated, there are all sorts of negative consequences to that, from children being uh, isolated from normal social inactivity in their formative years to businesses going completely kaput. So that is one more aspect. And now, where are we going with this? I'll tell you what I think is being done right now. Yesterday, I was talking about the Democrat playbook. The Democrats are going to become, if all things go as it looks, but you never know, increasingly desperate. Having established, I'm just putting this into class, students, that there is this dichotomy between uh, belief about the political belief about the mRNA, the Democrats have in their toolbox the ability to ramp up hysteria about COVID as we approach the election, think about this, in order to suppress credibility on the Republican side of the aisle using the controversy over the mRNA vaccine as a device to do it, just one more device to do it. It is really more than passing interesting. And it will be interesting to see if it actually gets down to that because some of the things that they're going to be using and have been setting up is an attack on the courts, uh, violence in the streets. Um, they've been removing statues and renaming schools and 
coming up with a critical race theory and questioning the declaration and um, that's all in their toolbox. But don't forget, they've still got the mRNA vaccine in their toolbox. They can still pull that out. They can still pull out student loans, forgiveness. Student loan forgiveness is going to be another thing you may see rolled out that will play politically, even though there's no justification for it. Um, here's some stats that I've researched. The average student loan borrower leaves college with a debt of 28400 And what do the students get for that debt? Over the course of their earning lives, those with some college gain a lifetime earning increase relative to someone who only completed high school. That's 10 times the average debt they incur. On average, a graduate with a bachelor's degree earns 40 times as much. A graduate with a master's earns 53 times as much. And a doctoral candidate graduate earns 80 times as much as the debt it cost him to get the degree. Law and medical degree holders earn almost 100 times as much. Well, so you're telling me it's a pretty good return on the debt? Yes. So if Biden forgives $10,000 of debt for some 45 million borrowers, it will be the largest gift uh, to such a large number of voters in American history. Don't count it out. It's in the Democrat toolbox, along with COVID skepticism about mRNA. Now, this proposed debt forgiveness is even uh, opposed by liberals who say it isn't justified or legal. But it won't matter because it will be a political win. They will gamble. It will be a political winner. So if this president focuses on 45 million student borrowers as if they were the only voters in America, yet 97 million other Americans over 25 with at least some college have paid off their loans, um, where, where do you, where's, the, where's the fairness? It ain't going to matter. It's all about buying votes. And we just talked with the, the representative about this open border. It, it is it is incredible that that border is so porous and we know what's coming across it. We know how it's affecting our communities. And I'm going to be researching this in the next couple of days and hopefully I'll bring back a good show for you. So um, this is um, um, disregards the actual studies on what a debt returns for somebody who uses the loan and becomes a professional and fully capable of paying it back. So the biggest falsehood, and this is in the article, which is written and published in the, in, in the journal. Do you know what the biggest, well, this is obviously an opinion, but what was the biggest lie of the Obama presidency? Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Ha. Huh. Wasn't even close. Wasn't even close. The Congressional Budget Office projected that $19 billion of Obamacare uh, uh, would make the nationalizing of private student debt um, pale in comparison. That would be up around 31 billion. Well, there you go. I was continuing today's story. What is in the Democrat playbook? What is in the uh, coming election that you can watch and be aware of and try to be astute enough to not... Uh, fail to examine critically. I want to thank my production people today for helping us. Uh, and um, we'll be making some announcements here in the next couple of days about some new sponsors. 
and we appreciate uh, all the donors too who helped us so much. We're going to be interviewed this afternoon by a big national publication on the uh, inmate situation. An article came out in the Gainesville Sunset today by Andrew Kaplan. He got that one correct, uh, although I chastised him for the one he wrote uh, on uh, uh, before in the, in the Sunday paper. The one he wrote about uh, the uh, inmates in the jail was, was right. He had that one right. So this afternoon we'll be uh, interviewed by a bigger publication. I'll keep you up to date on how that goes. Warthog Command Center out.